0: there's a crime scene cleanup franchise. They literally clean up like gruesome crime scenes and like sometimes like drug busts, like maybe like a meth facility or something like that. It's a business that can be run from like your home office, but you're literally there kind of cleaning up like guts and stuff like that. Uh, But they were making over six figures in cash flow. It was like, holy crap. That that was definitely the craziest one I've seen. Hey guys, welcome back to The Fork Podcast. My name is
1: Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. The Wolf of Franchises, welcome to the show.
0: What's up, Chris? Thanks for having me, man.
1: You bet. We were just talking, and before we get into franchises and and everything that you're doing, I thought it would be cool to start about how you built kind of this account on Twitter. So Wolf is anonymous but we just had an interesting discussion about kind of how this came to be and how he's built kind of a a relatively quick brand. And so can you just take us through the story of building an anonymous account and kind of what it's led to?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think an important part is just the experience I have, right? I was working in the franchise industry at a company that would invest in early stage franchises. And then we also had our own sales department there that would then find franchisees for any one of our brands in the portfolio so that gave me a ton of unique insight to a bunch of different franchise brands and franchise owners that were considering buying one of our brands and i just thought you know i was already on twitter with like kind of a my own individual account that i didn't actually contribute much uh, i just kind of learned from people in tech real estate etc and i thought franchising is a lot cooler than i think most people realize so let me just start tweeting about it and my whole philosophy is just that there it's a lot lower friction to get someone to follow you if they within looking at your profile picture and the name right if you can kind of brand that to a certain industry. So that's what I did with with franchises I called it the wolf of franchises just cuz I thought it'd be kind of funny. I made it right around the time of the Wall Street Bets account or you or you know the whole Wall Street Bets mania like the meme stocks. So I kind of saw like some of those Twitter accounts getting really big and they had kind of had these cartoon PFP type photos as their pro fix. So yeah, that was kind of the whole philosophy. And so far I'd say it's work. Just it's very easy to see what you're going to get if you follow me. And it's a quick yes or no is the reality when people stumble on my profile.
1: Did you know that when you started it or is that in hindsight, looking back the, the right thing you did?
0: Hindsight, a little bit of hindsight. Honestly, if if I'm being like totally candid, right, it was my first step into the world of content creation and sharing my ideas. And I'm sure you could probably relate to this. Like when you first start doing it, it's it's pretty scary. It's like, are people going to like what I say? You know, a lot of imposter syndrome in my head. So a little bit of the the anonymous idea was from just insecurity. And I'd rather share, you know, cause if I fail, no one actually knows it was me. My friends aren't gonna be able to be like, oh, I saw your Twitter account and you're sharing stuff. Which looking back, it's pretty lame to say, but it, it's the truth. And um, now that I've, you know, built a decent following up, it's, it becomes way less scary over time. Um, so, so that's been cool to see.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have long wanted to make an anonymous account. There's just certain things and details I just frankly just can't share. I admire a, a solid anonymous account and it's, you're probably the fourth or fifth one I've had on the pod and it's always fun to kind of see the backstory real quick. Before we move on to that, you you've grown it so big and you've, you've now actually turned it into a business. Can you just talk for a couple minutes about what you're doing with work week and kind of how it's evolving and how you plan to take this thing to the next level?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So work week, those who don't know, uh, it's a media startup based out of Austin the co founders, Adam Ross and Becca Sherman, were both leaders at The Hustle, the newsletter that got acquired by HubSpot for around 20 million. They have a ton of media experience and it's a creator first media company, meaning that they partner with individuals like myself to build out basically one to two person media companies within specific business to business verticals. So obviously, mine is franchises, but they also have marketing direct to consumer, climate tech, you know, you name it, they we have 20 creators on board. Everyone has their own newsletter, podcast, we're going to be doing events. And and the goal is to really be kind of the authoritative voice of your industry. And you know, for franchises, it's been franchises is very old school. Like a lot of the websites and media outlets, it hasn't really evolved honestly since the early 2000s, so For me, it was a no-brainer to partner with Workweek who could take these modern tactics from building an awesome company like The Hustle and apply it to an industry with, in my view, very little competitors. But overall, the goal for me and for what I'll be doing with Workweek is we're going to be using this this media as purely as top of funnel. So my newsletter, my podcast, my Twitter account, I have some cool product and business ideas that I I think is going to be very helpful for franchise owners and people looking to buy franchises. Because like I said, there's, there's just has not been a lot of innovation in the franchise industry in quite some time. So I'm pretty excited, you know, within the next month, I'll be launching our, our first kind of research platform product that is going to make it really easy to to find research and buy franchises. So that's kind of the, the long term strategy.
1: I love it. All right. Let's dive into the the good stuff. All the, the franchise Information we can handle. So let's start with like the most basic question of them all. What is a franchise?
0: Yeah. So a franchise, just a small business that decides to, and you know, it could be anything. Everyone thinks of McDonald's when they hear franchise, but could be a home services company, a gym, a barbershop, you name an industry, there is very likely a franchise in it. There's over 4,000 franchises in the United States. So it can be any industry, but it's really just a local small business. That decides to license its operational play playbook, marketing playbook, its branding, any trademarks to other business owners around the country. And in exchange for providing that to another business owner, they're collecting a franchise fee, a royalty, and likely an advertising fund fee and possibly some miscellaneous fees and charges in there. But for the most part, that's kind of the agreement is, I'll teach you how to run my business. In exchange for that, I'm going to collect 6% of revenue, and you're going to have to pay a $40,000 franchise fee to buy into our network of other franchise owners.
1: And do most franchise businesses that become franchises, do they kind of start out with that in mind? Or is it, hey, you know, we built a great store. This seems to really work. People really love it. This is going to be our way of expanding.
0: I'd say it varies from from brand to brand. Some people definitely are starting small businesses with the intent of franchising, which doesn't always work out because sometimes it, it it seems like people think it's like a get rich quick scheme where you just start a small business and boom you're going to franchise it, sell a bunch of franchises and cash out and then you're you know retired on a beach for the rest of your life. But it's really tough, I can tell you from experience of of selling and trying to bring in franchisees for various upstart franchise brands that I mean, it's a massive decision, right? A lot of these are six figure plus investments. So to basically sell someone on the idea of buying the franchise, not only are you asking them to dedicate the next three, five, 10 years of their life to building their business, but it's also multiple six figures worth of capital that they have to put down. So, or at least have on the table via some leverage. So yeah, it, it varies. I wouldn't say one way is better than the other, but you definitely see some people just stumble into it and realize they have a great concept and are like, oh, well, rather than Rage Venture, let's go franchise it.
1: Okay, so let's say somebody's sitting here listening to this and they've got a great small business. They've, they've proven that it works. They've been in business a long time. Are those folks hiring a, con- like who's kind of telling them like you would be a great franchise candidate. And then let's say that they have agreed that's the path. Are they hiring like a consultant or somebody to come in and kind of, I guess I'll call it business in a box, help outline the business and put it into something that can be easily understood and replicated?
0: Yeah. So there's definitely companies out there that will kind of assist in transforming your local small business into a franchise. And a big part of that is what's called the franchise disclosure document. So every franchise in the United States has one of these from McDonald's to the franchise that we've never heard of. It's regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. And it's basically a document that outlines kind of the important investment criteria and some other information on, on like the executives and the founders of the franchise. But the goal there is just so that if someone's going to buy your franchise, you have to provide them this document. They have to hold on to it for at least 14 days before actually signing and wiring any funds. So it's kind of a way to protect investors because I guess in the old days of franchising, in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of like I'd get on the phone with you, Chris, and I'd say, "Hey, like I have this amazing franchise opportunity, but you got to wire me the 60 grand franchise fee tonight, or else the locations you're you're going to miss the opportunity." So a lot of a lot of bad things apparently happen that way. Yeah, so the will be companies that kind of will do competitive analysis to say, "Hey, this is like your franchise competitors. This is what is in their franchise disclosure document. Your numbers stack up like this versus theirs." For me, unless you if you have the cash flow to build out your own kind of franchise development department, that's great. Do that because you keep your equity. But there's a lot of different companies that will just be a bolt on franchise development department Um, or some, which I actually think is a smart move, will raise money to kind of have the cash so that they as they find franchisees, they can hire the personnel to train, support them and all the things that go along with franchising.
1: Is there like a certain amount of units or stores that somebody should have proven out before they go to the franchise model
0: or it depends? So the logical part of me says like, yeah, you should have at least three to five of your own stores proven out as like a multi-unit operation that it that it can work. The reality is, Chris, I, I've seen franchises that they have one location, they start franchising and boom, they take off. And as I'm saying this, one that comes to mind is Crumble Cookies. They opened up one location in Utah. That's it. One. And the founders didn't come from the, like, the cookie industry. They just kind of fell into it, wanted to do their own thing. And it's taken off. And today, there's 535 stores open. They're going to do $1 billion in system revenue. like just to re- And that's after just opening up one cookie store. So it's kind of crazy what can happen.
1: I actually, we just had a box of crumble cookies sent to our house. We just had a baby and that was, that was
0: a gift we got was a, it was a box <laughs> of crumble cookies. So yeah, one of those cookies is enough, man. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't have more <laughs> than one at, one at a time.
1: Okay. So you, you, we've made a decision that we want to become a franchise. We kind of hire a company that's going to come in and say, you know, how long does it take to kind of put the business on paper to where you now have something that's ready to go sell the world? Is that a, that take a couple months a year like how long does it take to get it all on paper
0: probably like if if you're efficient 3 to 6 months cuz you're going to want to meet with attorneys to draft that disclosure document and then you have to register the disclosure document federally and some states require like for that document to be registered individually in their state and Frankly, you know, I've been through that process with new brands. It takes, sometimes it takes a few months for them just to say, yep, we went through your documentation, like you're good to go. You can legally start selling franchises. But the reality is you're just waiting on these government funded offices to get through paperwork. And it's sometimes it just takes long, but I'd say three to six months is a realistic timeline.
1: As a franchisee, are there any like big questions that they should be thinking about? Asking themselves, but also asking the franchisor when they're kind of going through the process.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, for one, just when you're looking at a franchise, back to that franchise disclosure document. I mean that that's a big factor in your due diligence process. And there's something called so it's broken out to items like it'll be item one, item two, item three, etc. And there's 23 primary items. So, item 19 is the one where you'll get to see a franchise's performance if they decided to share any of it. So unfortunately, there's no regulation that mandates a franchise to actually share performance data. So you you could be looking at a brand's FDD and it'll say, we've chosen not to share any financial information, some other legalese text there. But the ones that do, I mean, that's gonna be your idea of what potential return on investment you can get. So, if I see an emerging brand, and to me, I define emerging like anywhere from one location to 50, 60, 70 is emerging. You know, if you see an, a new brand that isn't sharing financials, to me, that's a red flag because wh- why wouldn't you, you know, you kind of have to show some proof that your concept is actually worth the investment. Whereas, like McDonald's, just to use the extreme example on the other end of the spectrum, they don't need to prove, right? Like, people know it, it, it's a massive franchise and, you can pretty much open one anywhere you're going to get customers coming in the door but new franchises they they got to show you know why they're worth the investment cuz it's riskier right part of the benefit of a franchise concept is that it is a quote unquote proven model so the newer a franchise is inherently the less proven it is so i would say just pay attention to that item 19 with the financial data other than that you can always speak to franchisees as part of your process so you know ask them kind of questions based on what you see in the documents versus what they, you know, the franchisees who are on the other side of the investment have seen, meaning like, hey, the listed initial investment range is 300 to 500 grand. Was that accurate for you? How quickly did you get the location up and running? Is the item 19 data, you know, like how quickly did you get to cash flow profitability? Is there seasonal customers? Is your revenue weighted too heavily in a, in multiple customers? And that's like a thing in home services I've seen where sometimes these franchises will franchise off of a business that had like two or three big corporate accounts that drove up their revenue, but most franchisees aren't going to get those, so yeah it, it's a little bit specific to the industry and the type of franchise, but overall, I'd say comparing the f d d to the existing owners and what what their experience has been like
1: like if a new brand is taking off, and I know a lot of questions you could probably say like it really depends, but Are a lot of the folks that are applying to be a franchisee, maybe this is just in general, are these first-time operators or has the industry kind of moved to a place where the majority of new franchisee openings are from proven operators that own a lot? Maybe we'll start there.
0: So um, based on my experience, it's a mix of first-time operators. And I'd say once a brand, I don't know what the magic number is, maybe it's 100 locations open. But there, there it gets to a point in the brand's life cycle where experienced operators are like, all right, this is legit. Let me now, like, I'll, I'll go and, and buy into this franchise. But I'll caveat that with that, the, the brands that do really take off, even when it is first time operators jumping in, they're, they're pretty sophisticated folks. And I like to point to Orange Theory because just through my past work, I had a lot of contact and conversations with many fr- franchise owners in that system a lot of big multi unit ones like folks who own 40 50 60 locations and also like the international rights to countries like Spain and Australia so these people were coming from like corporate investment banking white collar backgrounds but they know how to manage a P&L. they've led teams before not necessarily for a small business but teams within a, a larger corporation and you know they're very disciplined type people so that's part of the beauty of our franchise concept is that you can take someone with the discipline and the savviness who knows business right but you can give them a fitness concept and even though they don't have a lick of experience in the fitness industry that's what orange theory did for them right they said hey this is how you think about the fitness world this is how you hire trainers this is how you run a gym you know all those different things that they would have no idea about but they're able to just take that and apply it to their local orange theory and like that system's been a major success i mean founded in 2010 1400 plus locations open worldwide that type of growth is not the norm, that, that they're an exception to the rule. A lot of franchises take decades to really grow and hit national or international scale. But yeah, so mix of owners, man. But again, like first-time operators can still be pretty awesome, assuming that they have the discipline to kind of just take the playbook from the franchise or
1: So if it, let's kind of focus on first-time operators for a second. Are most of the first-time operators going to a conference and kind of looking at the menu of opportunities? Are they going, Hey, I worked out at an orange theory once I want to own an orange theory or like, is it usually I've experienced a product and now I want to bring it to where I am? Or is it more, uh, here's a list of businesses. This one seems really profitable and, and I don't find it in my city. And so I'm going to do this.
0: So there are people and I've met them who, who for Orange theory. They say, yeah, I did a workout and I was like, this is going to be amazing. So I got to buy one. There's others who like go to a, a restaurant. They discovers a franchise, and like, oh, I got to open one in my hometown. I personally don't think that's a good way to like research franchises. Like, just because you're a big customer of it, doesn't mean that it's a good business. With the orange theory folks, they got lucky. It was great. It was fantastic business. And a lot of these folks are, can probably retire today if they wanted to, who got into that system early. But yeah, the other way is. It's research, and and candidly, that's part of what I'm trying to kind of solve for with the media stuff I'm doing, and also this first like research platform that I'll be releasing in the next month. Hopefully, is that to do self guided research right now in the franchise industry, it is a mess. You know, it's kind of where car dealerships were in the 90s, where if you want to buy a car, you have to call the car dealership and you get a salesperson on the phone. And that was your only way of finding out good information. That's I, I'm not kidding. That's where the franchise industry is today. There are trade shows, but like most, of the, unless it's local to you, you're gonna have to jump on a flight. And frankly, a lot of the brands there aren't, aren't great. Um, and it's limited, right? I mean, there's, like I said, there's over 4,000 franchise brands in the U S so there's a ton of businesses out there. And at a trade show, you'll get like 80, 80 of them maybe. So yeah, And there are brokers, too, that basically function like real estate agents do in the residential real estate world, right? So you can use a franchise broker. They're not going to charge you anything up front, but they only represent 500 to 1,500 brands at most. And if they kind of introduce you to a brand that they have an agreement with, they're going to get like 90% of the franchise fee. So if you pay 40 grand to a brand and a broker was the one helping you find the brand... The broker's getting like 35 grand of that franchise fee into their pocket.
1: So if you were a first timer knowing what you know, and you were going to go negotiate with, let's call it a reputable, uh, franchisor, h- how would you structure a deal? Like, how do you know you're getting a good deal in this world? Like you just kind of mentioned, you can get fleeced pretty quickly. What things are typical and, and what things would you bring to the table to know that you're getting a good deal?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess again, like I start with the unit economics, so that that should be everyone's starting point. And even before you get to that point, it's like you have to know yourself, right? What your budget is as a potential franchisee. How much do you have to invest? You know, whether it's cash on hand, how much leverage do you think you can get via an SBA lender or maybe a private lender. But unit economic wise, at a minimum, and right, I read a newsletter that covers like new emerging brands, so I've been gone through and sifted through thousands of franchises financials, there are brands out there where like my minimum starting point, just to even consider covering it in the newsletter is at a minimum having revenue twice the initial investment, meaning a a brand is showing that they can produce revenue on average. That's two times the initial investment, or they're showing EBITDA. That's at least one third, the initial investment. So theoretically, right. If you get to cash, if you reach that EBITDA potential, you know, within three years, you could have paid off any of your uh, cash investment to build it. So that that's the minimum starting point is just make sure you're finding a brand with good good unit economics. And then on what you can like negotiate, it does vary from brand to brand. So the more established a brand is, the less negotiating power you're going to have, but the less established the, the the other, you know, you do have opportunities to say, hey, like I want to buy out a larger territory. And for a big brand, right, they're going to say, Oh, well, that territory is not available. Like we already have franchisees all over the place. Even if it was, the more proof of concept that they have, basically the more they can mandate that you're going to pay up front. So if you were to say, hey, I want like half of the top half of New Jersey, they're going to say you have to pay like 90% of those franchise fees up front, which that could be 500 dollars to a million dollars in franchise fees alone. But if it's a newer brand, and there's kind of like three strategies I think of when you're Going to buy a franchise, and one of them is target an emerging brand because they have the available territory, and they're going to be willing to cut deals in the early days because a big dynamic in franchising is just showing continuous growth and that you have new franchisees consistently coming into the system. So a brand's going to be willing to say, "Yeah, we'll give you that entire market. It's a huge market. You can build it. You know, you're going to be the exclusive operator in there as long as you stick to some type of like schedule." and stay on track with building locations, you know, maybe two, one to two locations a year at a minimum. And then that way, right? Like, like this is what the Orange Theory operators did. Assuming the brand's a good, a good one and it, you know, it all works out, then you're sitting five to seven years later with a lot of locations on your hands that are cash flowing and you can sell them, you can live off that cash flow, you can do what you want.
1: When you think of trade areas, is it upon the franchisor to decide what trade area, like how big or small they're going to make it? Or is it typically everybody shares the same map? So
0: you're you're asking, meaning like defining the territory that is kind of exclusive to you as an operator? Yeah. It varies by brand. Some will do it strictly by zip codes, which is pretty, pretty targeted. A lot of brands though will kind of do at a minimum by county. And this is more like newer emerging brands. You know, you have like, I think when everyone thinks of franchise, they think of big fast food and QSRs. So like Subway's notorious for, like, they don't, you don't get a trade area. <laughs> like They'll sell you a location in a strip mall in Fort Worth, and then they'll sell in the same strip mall, a location to someone three stores down. Yeah. So <laughs> the big, and I'm not kidding. That's happened. They're a bit of a, I would stay away from them is my advice. Most will, you'll at least get county lines. It could vary by city, right? Like, you know, I'm based in Manhattan. You're probably not going to sell like the whole there's no county that you're going to sell here. You're going to sell like pockets of neighborhoods. But that's something that's typically pretty strictly defined so that, you know, before you get in what your zone is, where you can build stores and where other franchisees can't come in. But then also there's marketing implications there, because if. Like you, you can only market theoretically within your territory and not within a franchisee's territory. Isn't Subway like a five thousand
1: dollar upfront kind of? What's what? What is the deal with Subway? Isn't it like the
0: least upfront deal of all time? I think it's like two hundred to three hundred grand to open up a Subway. The franchise fee is pretty low; it's like fifteen thousand. But like, that's another thing I say is like. There should be less focus on a franchise fee and just more total focus on what's the overall initial investment, franchise fee included, and then w- what's your potential ROI based on what they're showing you. Um, so yeah, Subway's pretty low. right? Like Jersey Mike's, Jimmy John's, other sub competitors are, you know, close are above half a million dollar investments for sure. But yeah, I mean, my thing with Subway is just they oversell locations and and they claim that they're not going to do that anymore, but. There's just there's so many better franchises, better ROIs. Like I think Subway's average revenue is about four hundred twenty thousand per store. Food margins are super low. Like let's assume they're getting ten percent on that. That's not a lot of money for you as an operator per location. So yeah, I just think given their track record and e- even with like issues with with customers, right, with like the fake tuna scandal and a host of other like issues with their like uh, in Ireland. Subway's bread isn't actually classified as bread because the sugar content is so high. So it's considered (laughs) confectionery, which is so it's cake. Legally, it's (laughs) classified as their bread is classified as cake in Ireland. So like things like that, I'm like, that's where like, as a local franchisee, I'm effectively being a local business owner. I would hate to see that about my brand in like the newspaper and on TV. Like, that's just not what you want. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of franchises out there you can probably find better than Subway.
1: Yeah, there were, about 50 pounds ago, there was a Subway over by TCU that I think I single-handedly kept in business <laughs> ordering 12-inch meatball subs day in and day there out. You go. Today, I'm more of a Jersey Mike's, Jimmy John's guy, not really a Subway guy anymore. I'm with you. Jimmy John's and Jersey Mike's, a lot a lot of fresher sandwiches. All right, so I've, I've found a franchise I want to buy. I've kind of done my due diligence. Is it typical that especially early on, like, how are they, how are they giving out? Are they doing a background check on me? Is there, is there usually something as the franchisee that I have to have shown that I'm worthy of uh, taking on your business? And I I know that like at a Chick-fil-A, there's probably a much higher bar than maybe at a subway. Those kind of are, I would say are the two ends of the barbell.
0: Yeah. So, and yeah, you're right. I mean, chick fil A's process. It's crazy. Um, We can get into that if you want. I I saw you just released the Chick-fil-A episode though. So I'm sure you guys went into it in that one. Most franchises have a very similar due diligence process that they put candidates through. And some of the steps might, they might, you know, be interchanged, but for the most part, it goes like candidate submits a request for information. You do an introductory call with the franchise um, and that's when you get a sales rep. That's kind of more, that's almost like the first round of an interview where they just want to make sure you're not a crazy person. And as long as you're not, they'll say, Hey, I'll send you a form, fill it out. And based on that, we'll then move to the next step, which is usually a franchise disclosure document review call. So that form is going to ask a lot of like, what's your net worth? How much cash is on hand? What's your timeline for buying a franchise? Do you want to operate one of the next three to six months? And it gives the sales team on the franchise side you know, an idea of how qualified of a candidate you are and how, what level of like, you know, how serious of a potential buyer they are. So from a due diligence perspective on the candidate, there's really no regulation, so to speak, meaning like there's no credit checks or anything. I mean, some franchises may do that, but I haven't heard of any. For the most part, it's that, that kind of that form. And the thought is right, that most people aren't just gonna lie about that. And then if they are lying about like, you know, let's say I only have a thousand dollars, but I'm telling this franchise that I'm worth, I've got 500K in the bank, and you know, I'm good to fund a franchise up to two million dollars. The thought is, right, if I go through the whole lengthy process, which is usually at a, at a minimum two to three months and always culminates in flying out to visit the brand's headquarters where they do PowerPoint presentations and they'll bring you to a few locations to like walk you through what it's actually like operating the store, whatever that may be. Why would someone go through all that if they're faking it? And you know, at the end of the day, when it came time to sign the franchise agreement, if you don't actually have the money or a means to get the money, you're kind of going to get exposed. So the the system and the incentives itself kind of lead itself to like only qualified people end up actually going through it anyway. But um, there is no really actual credit check or even like I'm kind of surprised franchises don't maybe like integrate with Plaid to get financial data on customers or something like that pretty much that that form and just how you conduct yourself throughout the whole process is kind of their background check, so to speak.
1: Is there any data on the franchisee actually being someone that works in the business or a lot of first timers, folks that just want to own it and put somebody in
0: charge? So you're asking like how, what percentage of new owners are owner operators versus passive? Yeah, I guess like I, having just done Chick-fil-A,
1: I know that you know, you have to have worked there for multiple years in a store. You have to be very familiar to even apply to be an operator. And I guess I'm just maybe thinking when you're looking at folks that are doing this for the first time, are they looking to do this as a job or a lot of first timers just looking, you know, it's just to own something and then they've got somebody else
0: that runs it. I'd say the goal typically is that to build it to a point where they don't have to run it. That, that takes time though. And depending on what franchise you're looking at and what websites you end up on. A lot of opportunities are advertised, like from the start as as semi-passive or semi-absentee is kind of the common lingo. Most franchises, right, they they theoretically can be operated semi-absentee from day one, but there's two things there. If you're gonna do that, you're gonna have to pay someone to run your store and be in the day-to-day, which normally if you're ramping up a new franchise, that's money out of your bank account to hire that person to run it from day one. You know, you're not gonna have the cash flow on day one from the franchise to actually pay that person's salary. So I would just caution people that like, the semi-absentee model is very realistic. I'm like, you know, I have my own podcast, Franchise Empires, where I'm constantly interviewing multi-unit franchise owners. And a lot of them have gotten to the point, right? Where they have three, five, you know, I even had someone who owns 140 franchises on the podcast. They have store managers, and then they have like area managers who manage a cluster of store managers, and then they're as the owner of the whole system, right? They're just sitting at the top, kind of managing KPIs, and maybe they're working 15 to 20 hours a week, depending on if they're kind of happy with where they are and aren't trying to grow and buy more locations at that point. So it's very possible to do the semi absentee thing, but I think my my point is like you have to work your way to that from a cash flow perspective with your locations, and then even something that isn't talked about enough that I've learned just from speaking with these owners is the emotional side of it. Right. Like if you put three hundred thousand dollars down on a new franchise and if you keep your W two and you hire someone to like manage the construction and launch day and all those types of things, you can do it semi-absentee, but like mentally and emotionally, you have so much cash on the line, you're not gonna wanna just kind of let someone else take it over. You're gonna you you're the one with the skin in the game. You're gonna want to be there. So I've spoken to people who kind of say, like, yeah, I didn't realize that and like this is before COVID in, in the parking lot of a strip mall on their opening day, trying to like manage a conference call, but also like try to greet customers. And I'm just like, that sounds miserable. Yeah. So yeah, just those are things to consider if you're getting into it.
1: On the newer franchises, how are they being financed? Is SBA t- the typical way to do it? I know if you're going to go finance like a McDonald's banks, probably look at it as pretty bulletproof, but if I'm going to do one of the first crumbles, how
0: are people financing this stuff? Yeah. So for the newer ones, it's tougher. I've spoken with some lenders and it seems like just from what I've heard, generally speaking, the minimum is need 50 locations open for it to actually get financed. And there's something, you know, a lot of franchises will say, yeah, we're listed on the SBA registry, which is basically just a database of all quote unquote SBA approved businesses. But being on the registry doesn't mean they're actually going to give you financing, which I learned that as a salesperson for a franchise and lost a few deals over it. So I found out that the hard way. Typically, the newer ones are usually being financed via cash on hand from the individual, or they'll raise money right, for friends and family. Or I met someone who networked his way at a bunch of just financial conferences. Like this person didn't come from money, didn't have a network of people with money, just really hustled his way to meeting people who could help him put together enough money for a deal. And he did it. So yeah, uh, the newer franchise is tougher to get financing. But The more established it is and the more locations open, the more likely you are to be able to get SBA financing. And the last thing I'll say is too, I've heard of like a few one-off scenarios where people are working with an emerging brand that only has like five to 10 locations open. and, And they really just, they speak to any lender under the sun. And I remember one, I forget the name of the brand. It was a pet, it was a new pet brand. And he ended up finding like a regional bank that was willing to finance it. And he was happy with the terms. So it is possible, but I wouldn't depend on that if I'm going into my franchise due diligence process with the intention of buying like an early stage brand.
1: How do you do due diligence on the franchisor from a standpoint of, okay, you're legit. You own 70 of these. We're good so far, but I want to make sure that I'm going to own these for 10 years that you care about continuing to evolve in marketing and branding and better pro like, how do I know I've got a franchisor that's going to continue to evolve with me and not kind of Peter out? Is there anything that you kind of look for there?
0: I do. The thing is like the reality is you you don't actually know until you sign the contract and you see what happens. Cause right. Like as a franchise grows, I mean, especially in the last, I feel like 10 years, private equity's gotten really interested in, in franchises, right? Because royalty streams are such a valuable, just form of reliable income. So The the founders of a franchise may have very great good intentions and they want to stick it out for the 5, 10, 20 years of a brand. But all of a sudden, if you sell 100 locations and you have 50 of them open, I mean, private equity is going to come knocking that, like probably earlier than that, honestly. Like I've worked with a brand that we had five locations open. We sold like 90 locations. So those are locations in development, right? Not actually built and even then we had private equity reaching out to us saying hey we want to potentially buy out this brand already even though it's not proven so uh, you don't know what's going to happen you kind of really have to go off your gut i'd say that's a big part of just the whole due diligence process and something that i encourage people who are trying to buy a franchise to really like take stock of is like a lot of the franchises throughout that that process are going to say to you like hey like we're evaluating you we want to see if you're a good fit for us but At the same time you can push it back on them for these newer brands and say like hey i'm evaluating you as well because i want to see that you guys fit my morals are you trustworthy and those are the good questions to ask like what what is their you know what is their goal with the franchise because it'll vary i mean i've met franchise founders and i doubt they say this to their candidates but they've said to me like yeah okay this is a five to seven year play i want to grow it as much as i can and then i want to sell it to private equity and they want to sit on a pile of cash after that, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just kind of letting everyone know that, like, that that's the mission of, of the franchise. And you don't necessarily know what's gonna happen when you have a new buyer come in. I've heard of scenarios where private equity comes in and it's great, they actually make things better, they streamline processes, they add some modern tech that make the franchisee's lives easier. But I've also just heard the opposite where it becomes a nightmare. You know, Royalties get raised, fees get raised once franchise agreements come for up for renewal. So uh, it can go both ways, and yeah that that's just something to consider right when you're looking at a brand, but I, I would say most most brands, purely by the numbers, don't make it that far to the private equity exit is the reality. How long does the typical agreement last five years, ten years T- Ten is standard, but that doesn't mean that you as a franchisee have to like stick it out for ten years right you, if you build out locations and you're getting offers five years in and you can find a buyer that the franchisor says like, yeah, like we approve them. They can come in and buy it. So you can sell out before your agreement ends. But tip, the typical one is still a 10 year agreement. And the big brands will do like 20, like McDonald's, Burger King, they do 20 year agreements. Most other ones are doing 10.
1: And I'm assuming private equity is buying into both sides of the equation. They'll buy the franchisor or they'll go buy a big franchisee.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, it depends on the fund, but yeah, there's, it, you're seeing it on both sides. They're usually they're buying out franchisees, but then there's also ones who write. Like, maybe a franchisee has gotten like I don't know, five, uh, probably ten locations. I think like three to five million in EBITDA is like the minimum I've seen, where where private equity will then kind of go in with a multi-unit operator who they think is qualified enough and has what it takes to really grow an operation. But they'll basically just do a recapitalization and they'll partner with existing franchise owners and take them from 10 locations to 30, 40, 50, 60. So yeah, you're seeing it at all sides.
1: And in all cases, like if I wanted to sell my business, I don't really need to go get approval for in, from anybody. But if I own 10 you know, locations, I have to get permission from the franchisor to sell to this buyer. What does the typical language look like in agreement that says, look, if I bring a credible buyer to the table, you kind of got to let me sell this. It, like, How does that uh, actually look on
0: paper? So, I mean, frankly, it's a lot of legal jargon that I don't understand. Um, Welcome to the club. uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically, it's going to be just in plain English. The way I would translate it is, you know, it's got to be someone qualified financially who upholds our brand standards. And it's a lot of cookie cutter jargon that you'd expect. The thing I would just kind of say is... There are a few brands out there that um, kind of from the get go, they say like, hey, we want to be locally owned and operated. We don't do private equity buyouts. And like there's like a, an auto detailing franchise, Christian Brothers Automotive, that's pretty pretty well known for that in the industry. You're not going to be able to get a private equity firm to buy it out because the franchise, they don't want that. They want like franchisees to really own the locations and be involved. But other than that, for the most part, brand like the franchisors are usually assuming it's a private equity buyout. I mean, that's good for them, right? Because you got to remember, franchisors make their money for the most part off that royalty stream. So if you own 10 locations of a brand, and then, you know, I'm going to use on my podcast, I interviewed uh, someone who he owned eight Club Pilates franchises when PE kind of came knocking. And he spoke to a few different firms, ended up partnering with one. And this was like three years ago. Today, he's got 40 locations. So not only is that a great deal for the franchisee, but also the franchisor because they're going to get more locations of their brand built quicker if their franchisees are partnering with private equity. And then, right. That's a, that's a big boost to the royalty stream. So for the most part, the economic incentives do align, but yeah, just, just that's another, you know, now that you're saying it, it's a good thing to ask during kind of due diligence is like, just get a sense of the franchisor and how they would feel about transactions like that potentially down the road.
1: And is it safe to say, like, if you take that club Pilates guy, he owns eight locations and he's partnered with private equity it's just safe to assume that if he if he's been running solid eight locations that there should be a pathway for him to get to 40 like is is there a circumstance where it's like look you have eight and that's all we're going to give you and and maybe you would already know that up front that that's the type of franchisor you're you're working with like what gives people the confidence that they can keep going the distance within
0: a brand yeah, so what you said is exactly right. Usually, no up front from the brands because like they'll even you'll just get a sense of it in due diligence where maybe you're trying to negotiate for like three locations and they'll say no, like you're starting with one. This is how we do things. We only sell one location. If you do well, maybe we'll give you a second down the road. And that that should be more of enough of a kind of um, alert that right like this isn't a brand that does multi unit operations and. Um, if their existing franchisee based, like the average units owned is only one to two, that's another good sign. But I mean, for the most part, the brands that are, that limit the number of locations you can own, they're incredibly upfront about it. Right. Cause they really want like the passionate operators who just want to own one store for the most part. So, yeah, I mean, I- I'd say, right. Your reputation definitely precedes you in a franchise system. The better you do, not only does the franchisor, other franchisees take stock of that too. So I've seen franchisees who then use that reputation to kind of get off-market deals a lot quicker because you have this closed network of franchisees, and everyone says, "Oh, Chris is the is a really good franchise owner. I'm looking to sell and get out. I know he's going to take care of my my baby." Basically, so like you'll get deals offered to you. And then the last thing too, I'll, I'll say on that, right, is that it's easier for the franchisor in reality is to have more units owned by their good operators because that's Every time you bring in a new new operator, you got to train them, you got to bring them down to headquarters, kind of got to hold their hand a little bit in the beginning. But if I already have an existing owner who owns 10 locations, 15, 20, however many locations, and they're killing it with all of them, then boom, I don't have to train. It's, it's less capital intensive and resource intensive for the franchisor to give all their as many locations as possible to the owners who can handle it.
1: All right. I'm not going to the second part of the conversation, we're not going to put you on the spot, but now we get to hear what you would do. So like if I just started with what franchises do you love and which ones do you not love? And you've already talked about Subway and maybe you can go <laughs> a little bit further on them. But if if you were going to go buy something today, how would you think about what to buy?
0: There's There's good industries, right? And I kind of like that. Buying a brand in an industry that kind of has some tailwinds. So the pet industry is kind of a good example of that. Like during COVID, right? Pandemic puppies and all those things. Like a lot of people bought pets and millennials especially seem to be treating pets differently as you know, more of a member of the family. Dogs have have more beds than the humans in the house. They're not in the doghouse in the backyard anymore. And like we've seen that do really well since COVID. And then on top of that, another winner during COVID was a lot of takeout restaurants in general and like fast food, but pizza, especially seems to like, just be like pizza works in every economy, right? If you want to celebrate something buy pizza, If funds are tight buy pizza. Uh, it's pretty awesome. And it, like, you know, Domino's obviously crushed during COVID, but for me, again, I'm more of a capitalist, I guess, where I'm less, it's, it would be less of a passion project for me and more of just what's the best ROI. So, when I look at brands, right? Like I've mentioned crumble earlier. I mean, their unit economics today are amazing. It's like a 300 to $650,000 investment average EBITDA is 360 K, but they're selling cookies. There's now, I I've already just, I've been re- you know, people have reached out to me that are starting their, their own cookie franchises. And this is kind of something that happens in the industry is like one concept does really well and something that's maybe not as popular. And you know, there really isn't a major cookie franchise, but now Crumble's there. So people think they can come in and just replicate what they've done and by the guess it's going to become really saturated. So, like, would I want to enter Crumble today? Ah, it's a little risky. I mean, they're a pretty amazing brand, I think. But yeah, I guess I'd say what I would do honestly, and this is something I've been seeing happen more. You've probably seen it on Twitter, right? Where there's like 66 percent of small businesses today are owned by baby boomers. And that's going to get transferred to, to new owners over the next 10, 20 years. And so about 10 to 15% of those are franchise businesses, which no one really talks about that. It's my job. But there's a way where you can basically target these older brands that are more established. And I've had folks from Midas, the car franchise, to Wingstop, to Five Guys, You know, really any established brand that's been around for a few decades and has a 1,000 plus locations. They acquire one existing location. And then, as I mentioned before, they kind of use their closed network of franchisees. They kind of market themselves, speak to everyone, say, hey, I'm always looking for, for new locations. And when these older owners who have been in the system for a while want to sell, they go to the younger ones who are hungry and are trying to gobble them up. And people have gone from one location to 30 locations within the span of five years, which is pretty pretty crazy because that that means... Obviously, you have some debt there that you're probably paying off via seller financing, but still, from just a, a total operation like growth perspective, it, it, it's pretty fantastic. So for me, I would, I mean, the thing is, it works with so many, so many brands, and there's probably like four to, you know, there, there's a, there's a ton that you could do. I'd probably say though, like Mathnasium's a really good education franchise that I've seen operators of 20 plus locations do, you know, do incredibly well, million dollar plus uh, bottom line EBITDA, uh, Orange Theory, Anytime Fitness, the UPS store is another good one that I'd love to own. Not a, a lot of competitors in that. So yeah, I, I'm not really set on like specific brands. It's really just like the cash flows of those aren't going to be incredibly sexy. You know, you're not making like half a million off of one location, but it's it's what can you do at scale when you roll them up?
1: If I said, um, all right, well, if we're partnering and we're getting into the pizza industry, so we've we've at least narrowed that down would we be focused on maybe new pizza brands or would you gravitate towards a legacy domino's pizza hut papa john's type of brand like if you had to pick within pizza how would you kind of break down where in pizza you would want to be
0: yeah so the thing with that is like the big brands like a domino's they're not like chick-fil-a but they have a lot of higher standards like a lot of to own a domino's specifically you need to work in the store for at least twelve months and go through an extensive training program. So for some people, they're like they don't want to hold off their income for that long because you're not going to be making a lot of money when you're going through that kind of training program. and you know you have to drop your w two if that's what you came from. So for me, I, I would go the emerging brand route in, in that scenario. but I, I don't think there's like a wrong way to do it. I think the the thing to note, right, is that if you're going to the older brands, your your route to expansion is going to be by acquiring existing locations. Whereas you're going for a newer brand, it's you know you're going to be doing a lot more new builds likely, and that takes longer to cash flow. A lot of people, you know, from what I've been being told, it's it's more difficult and strenuous, right, to get that business off the ground and running versus acquiring the existing ones. So, but you can negotiate the larger territory. It's it's all a lot of a lot of white space for you versus having to kind of play that game of networking with the franchisees and trying to get new opportunities. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's like a personality. This is about you, buddy. This is about the wolf. What drives? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've just seen it so much from the, the owners who buy into the new brands and I mean, the uh, orange theory and a few other brands in particular, right. Just that's my personal work experience who I, I happen to work a lot with. And when you find the right brand, man, I mean, it's it's a lot easier. An amazing brand can turn an average operator into an exceptional operator, but it's hard to turn an average brand into an exceptional one, even if you're an amazing operator. So I just think that's, it's such a critical aspect of the process, right? Is the brand you choose.
1: For consumer facing franchises, is there any tips or tricks I got a lot of real estate listeners for how to find the right location, like things that if if, if again, if we're staying in pizza or whatever, like what would you be looking for in a
0: location besides just great deal on price? Yeah. I mean, obviously like the the foot traffic that you can get drive by traffic as well. Look, a lot of franchises are are built for strip malls in line locations that that's kind of like the the perfect spot for, for many of them. And again, whether that's, a subway or a massage envy or or any type of brand strip malls just seem to be a good fit. It's all about exposure, and yeah, I mean you you could probably run circles around me in the real estate world, but uh, the franchisor is going to help too a lot in, in that process for where you should be. And yeah, I mean, and that's that's a major part of it, though. I think I admittedly kind of became under the impression that you know with Google reviews and these other things that locate physical location was less important because as long as you're getting online reviews and are found there, people are going to find you, which obviously that helps. I'm not saying that doesn't matter, but at the end of the day, I mean, if you get a good location, that's amazing marketing just by the amount of people that are going to drive by and see your store. If you're next to a tenant, maybe like a Starbucks and you're not doing coffee, obviously that'd be great. Just anything that's going to, you know, I like grocery anchored kind of shopping centers, I think are a really good, just general strategy.
1: All right. What are the things that you would stay away from, if it was again? This is your opinion. Yeah, specific brands. Yeah, you can say brands. You can say industries, types, or types of franchisors. I mean, just things that would be like a total red flag. You're staying away from. For again, this is you,
0: not. I'd say uh, as a starter starting point, I do think boutique fitness is great, but it's it's becoming pretty saturated. I'd say it started back with some of the brands I've mentioned, like Club Pilates, Orange Theory, F45 is a big one too that I haven't talked about, but they were kind of like the first boutique fitness group fitness type workout classes. But now today you have, A, like those brands all have a thousand plus locations worldwide. There's other brands that do specific workouts for kind of every exercise imaginable. Like you have a brand called Row House, where you can only do rowing-based workouts. You have a brand called Stride, where it's only treadmill-based group workouts. And so can the market, can all the major markets in the United States support all these concepts at scale? Like, definitely not. People just aren't working out that much. So yeah, I, I would... Even though like this is my thing. If you're in the game and you're a sophisticated operator... I'm not going to tell them how what they should do, but if you're a new operator, I just don't think like that. That's a market I'd stay away from unless you're getting like a great deal on a more established one, like an Orange Theory or an F45. But you know, for for the most part, I think that's something I'd stay away from. I'd also generally stay again unless you're a food operator. Like I just think there's better margins in in other in other franchises. I, I've met massage envy owners who can do half a million in EBITDA off a single location. And so, like, yeah, it was it. Is it everyone's dream to own a massage business? Probably not. But like, I just think a lot of people come in and I see it with my newsletter too, because like we have a quiz based or not a quiz, but a survey where you subscribe, you sign up. And then I, I ask them, like, what franchises are you interested in most by industry? Restaurant is 50, it's like close to 50% of them, despite the fact that it's typically the highest investment range and lowest margins. You know, if a franchise is doing 10 to 12% in EBITDA, in the food space, that's considered pretty good, right? And that's after royalties, of course. Yeah, so I'd say stay away from food, stay away from boutique fitness. If you're a new operator, there's a lot better just box economics concepts out there.
1: All right, we're gonna pull from some Twitter questions. What's like the craziest business you've actually seen become a franchise? Like something that we wouldn't expect. You've probably seen something that comes across your radar that you laugh at.
0: I saw the one that's coming to my head now is there's a lot. I mean, there's so many niche businesses, but there's a crime scene cleanup franchise that actually had pretty, I, I could pull it up if you want me to, but it was called Spalding Deacon. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's like Spalding and then D E C O N. They literally clean up like gruesome crime scenes and like sometimes like drug busts, like maybe like a meth facility or something like that. It's a business that can be run from like your home office but you're literally there, kind of cleaning up like guts and stuff like that. But they were making over six figures in cash flow. I was like, holy crap! That that was definitely the craziest one I've seen.
1: What's the best
0: healthcare franchise out there? Ah, I saw that one. Yeah. Um, there's not that many healthcare franchises. Here's another thing I'll say before I answer that question: is I've said this a few times already, but there's four thousand plus franchise brands, and depending on the research you do on franchises. You'll end up on websites of like brokers or people who call themselves franchise consultants. And they say, you know, we're the franchise experts. Don't I include myself in this? None of us are experts. There's so many franchises across so many different industries, right? Like it's unrealistic to think one person actually knows the ins and outs of every industry, all the competitors, and especially what happens at a local level and the dynamics there. So Yeah, that's just a disclaimer for the like, there's just too much. It's too wide ranging. It's too expansive for one person to truly be an expert. You know, I consider myself more of a generalist in the franchise world where I know a a decent amount about a lot of different brands and what's going on. But like, I'm not the expert, right, in a specific field. Anyway, when it comes to healthcare franchises, though, American Family Care, I met a few multi-owners who are doing very well off of five locations. And, And when I say very well, I mean, low seven figure EBITDA. That's kind of like an like an urgent care style concept. So you don't have to book an appointment and just walk in. Usually quick in and out, more basic um, needs. And then depending on uh, the person, some people don't consider chiropractors legit. But there's one called the Joint where that's also a franchise that you know the owners have done really well, and they have a cool area developer model too, where you can actually sub franchise underneath, meaning like you, Chris, can open a few locations in Fort Worth. But then, if you want to buy out a larger territory, but you don't want to own them, you can you can find franchisees locally. Buy you can open underneath you, and you get a little piece of that royalty stream that they generate.
1: Does real estate play into anybody's decision to get into this? So when I think often you'll hear the 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 legend of McDonald's being one of the greatest real estate plays ever. But when I think of those ten to twelve percent EBITDA margins, I also go, yeah. But if you own the real estate, that's pretty good too. Like I guess, I don't know what the question is, but how big of a a impact does owning real estate play into some of these people decisions or is it an
0: afterthought? It's honestly an afterthought. And, And what I'd say is like, just from all my conversations on my podcast and just in general, I mean, most of the real estate, you know, like McDonald's started in the 1950s. There's a lot more land up for grabs back then, but you go to into a strip mall or anywhere else, there's usually some real estate development company that owns the land already. It's a lot tougher. You know, I had one franchisee who lived in um down in South Carolina. I forget. It's like a big vacation town, not Charleston. Or maybe it was Charleston. I don't know. It was, it was around that area. But basically, now, T- now, nah, nah, maybe it was Charleston. But regardless, the point is right. It's not like a tier one or tier two market. More opportunity. This person owned, you know, he owned a few like auto detailing franchises. And he also owned the real estate because he could. And so, like, I think if you can at any point, obviously, that, that's a a game changer to not only own the business, but if you're owning the land it sits on, I mean, that's just a much more valuable package if you do eventually decide to sell down the road, but it's a lot harder to do is the reality. So yeah, I'd say most people aren't focused on it and you, know, you can still do well, right? You can still do I- incredibly well just by leasing spaces and, and owning the, the business itself.
1: There are some businesses that don't seem to exist in a large number of states. How does an operator get a franchise to a brand new state and like, how do they go about convincing them? Are some folks just not interested in, in moving States? Like, how do you think about that?
0: Sorry. So the question there is like, how do franchisors think of expanding?
1: Yeah. Or if, is there something that a franchisee can do to go to a franchisor and say like you, I know you don't, you haven't gone to Colorado or Texas traditionally, but you should really think about that. Or is it usually made at the franchisor level that these are the, this is the region we're going to stay in and that's it.
0: There's a few that do that. You know, like Culver's is a uh, pretty notorious for systematic expansion and slower expansion. I've never been to Culver's. I hear it's amazing. What is it? It's based out of Wisconsin. It's like a, Burger joint. Okay. But uh, yeah, like people who go. It's like, it might be like the next Chick fil A fall. I know, because like Chick fil A kind of had a similar systematic expansion strategy. But yeah, very few are honestly like that. Again, because of the economic incentives. Like it's, uh, if you're limiting where you're going to grow to like geographically, it's just going to be a lot slower. And from the franchise or perspective, the way you're going to make more money is by selling more locations ensure that they're profitable so that your franchisees stay in business and that some new franchisees keep keep coming in the system. But right, the higher system revenue you have, the more royalties you're bringing in. So just the nature of those economic incentives, the large majority of franchises aren't doing that, like a slow, systematic approach. The reality is that they have someone who's qualified, who's on the other side of the country. You know, they're going to be willing to give them a shot for the most part. So yeah, it's really not a, a major issue. But yeah, I mean, look, that's that's probably just a a conversation that, that you'd want to have as a franchisee probably before buying in if that's if that's a big factor. And just to clear up kind of like a a bit of a misconception sometimes about franchises, like franchisees do, especially if it's an emerging brand, they're gonna have a lot more say than you you'd think um, with the franchisor, right? Because like. If a franchisor's got 2 to 5 locations of their own and then they start to franchise, you know, they don't know what what's going to happen when, you know, if they're based in Florida and someone opens up in North Carolina or Mississippi or or wherever. So, a lot of them, you know, those first franchisees are actually a huge part in kind of building the the rest of the playbook for franchisees and for the system as a whole because they always learn new things like when you go to a new market, what works better for a grand opening plan. Local marketing tactics. Customers may have a little bit of a different desire for certain things. So, yeah, I, I would just say, just want to caveat that and note that as a franchisee, if it's an earlier brand, you actually will get some good face time with the franchisor, and it's not just like here's your, here's the rules you have to follow them. You know, they will take ideas from franchisees and and integrate it into the system.
1: Okay. When you're talking about, one of the questions was about in and out cult following good product, but only in a few states. Why not be everywhere?
0: Yeah, that's an example of uh, another one, kind of like Culver's, where they're systematically growing. So yeah, I did a thread on them. And ultimately what I found was they're obsessed with quality and maintaining the quality of their food. They do have a pretty, like, they select their own cattle. They bring it to their own. Meat processing facility. And then from there, it gets shipped out and driven to every single store on a 24 hour basis. So they won't open anywhere where they're more than a 24 hour, you know, a day's drive, they say, a day's drive from one of those facilities. And obviously, right, to open one of those facilities, like you need more than one store per facility. So that's their biggest reason they're not going to be, they're not willing to compromise on quality. So it's going to be a slow a very slow burn for them to uh, build across the country and the existing CEO who's about 35 36 years old she's third generation owner her name's Lindsey Snyder I think there was some like viral comment on like a YouTube video or something I can't remember what the story was but basically someone in the press was asking like oh like when are you going to move to Texas because like someone was really curious about Texas and they're there now but she's saying that she she doesn't think in her lifetime they're going to expand East of Texas so for us here on the East Coast that that was bad news yeah it's all about those those distribution facilities for them.
1: Uh, one thing I didn't cover and then I got like one or two more, but is the nightmare scenario that a franchisee is doing really well and their franchisor is mishandling, not mishandling funds in like an, an, an illegal way, but just bad at capital allocation. They're kind of the problem. Like, do you ever see that where the franchisor is the problem, not the franchisee and, and what kind of happens when that happens?
0: Absolutely. I mean, like the, the biggest nightmare scenarios are franchisee gets caught up in the growth and like unit growth and stops focusing on profitability at the unit level. And like Quiznos is a classic example of this where they were selling locations like hotcakes, but they were then, so yeah, so this is what can happen. They become more interested in their own profitability than the actual success of the franchisees. And on a long-term basis, that's never gonna work, right? Like Chick-fil-A is actually a great example of like how it should be. They make sure all their stores are being run well, and the, prof, the customer service is amazing and franchisees see that in their bottom line. Whereas Quiznos, they started selling all these locations. They realized that if they had every franchisee buying their supplies specifically at a markup, that all of a sudden they were, they were making more money just from the markups on the supplies. Like I'm talking like the napkins, forks, and obviously the food cost of goods. They were making more money by selling that as a supply company. To franchisees than they were from the royalty streams so not only were franchisees then buying above market supplies right like they could have found them for cheaper elsewhere but quiznos on the back end then is also offering ridiculous customer discounts like five dollar or four dollar subs so franchisees literally aren't making money on these promotions and there's some crazy stories out there like customers coming into the stores being like hey like i have my coupon for the four dollar sub and the Quiznos franchise is being like, no, like we're not doing that, and like fights break out, and it gets crazy. So like that's that's the nightmare scenario: is a franchisor starts caring way more about growth, and ultimately that hurts the franchisees. And right, like, Quiznos went from like 1500, I think, or no, was it 1500. Yeah, a lot. They have a thousand plus stores at their peak, and there's like 150 today. So it's really, really crazy how many have closed down. And the thing that really sucks about that is. That's small business owners at the end of the day that are getting hurt there, right? So yeah, franchisors should should really just focus on, focus on the profitability of the franchisees and everything will take care of itself. You, you'll make plenty of money still going that way.
1: I have to say there was also a time where I probably kept the local Quiznos in business with the, the, <laughs> the chicken bacon ranch. That was, that was
0: about 50 about Oh, that was ago. good. Yeah, hey, honestly, <laughs> so I did a thread on Quiznos and the thing I learned was, People miss it. The amount of people who said, why, why is Subway still in existence? And Quiznos is like, my Quiznos blows. Like everyone was a much bigger fan of the food than Quiznos, that's for sure. You, you
1: did say one thing
0: that, that I,
1: I want to just uh, ask on. When a, f- a company like that has a franchise model offers a deal to the market, I'm assuming they kind of always have to do it for every store, Cause there's times where you might get a coupon from one store, but you go spend it at another store that's owned by somebody different. I'm assuming that this is all kind of contained and that there's no, you know, Hey, I didn't give you that coupon. The operator across the street gave you that coupon, go spend it there. Like how does how that worked out?
0: There's national programs. <clears throat> if you actually read the fine print on a lot of the promotions, even like on the market collateral, it's usually in pretty small print, either in the bottom right or like right under the price. It'll say only at participating stores. For the most part, like the, the Quiznos uh, horror stories obviously generated a lot of headlines back in the day. And those stories get a lot of press. But for the most part, like the franchisors are still the Most of them are running promotions that the franchisees can still make money on. And like, right. A lot of the time, like if it's Dunkin Donuts, it'll say. Maybe they're offering a good deal on coffee, and the goal is to like get some upsells on products just from that extra foot traffic so i I'd say a lot of them, right? Like all the franchisees are typically on board with it anyway, but again, for the most part, it is up to the franchisee to be one of those participating stores.
1: All right, last one um and and we kind of touched on this earlier, but if I wanted to go buy somebody out is is the best way to do it? to go find an investment banker that is, or a consultant in the area? Is it to go directly to the franchisor and say, which of your franchisees would be good for me to buy out? Is it cold call the local franchisee owner? Like if I wanted to go start buying stores, what, what, what's the best way to do it? Assuming I have some money behind me and, I, and I'm looking to actually grow multiple locations.
0: Yeah. So if it's a newer brand, so we call those resales, franchise resale. Newer brands, it's up to the franchisee to kind of figure out that process. The big brands like Burger King's, McDonald's, any national brand for the most part, they handle that internally. But even going to the franchise or for you as like a new person, still going to be tough because if any franchisee is looking to sell, they're going to look internally first for the most part. Because kind of what I went, what I said earlier, where it's easier for the big successful franchisees who already know what they're doing just gobble up the smaller ones and get bigger and bigger and that makes sense for the franchisor right because the the lack of training they need to provide so yeah I, I'd say um, it's it's tough to break into the big brands that's that's really the only way to explain it but if if it's again that that's I'd probably only say it's like 100-ish brands are doing that that are at that scale where they handle it internally and like it's really tough to break in for the rest of them local small business brokers, Invest a small like investment bank probably would only be involved if it was like a hefty amount of locations, right? Like, they're not going to be working with three to five store owners, or probably not even three to 10 for for a lot of brands. Um, so yeah, small business brokers would probably be your way to go. All right, I said that was the last
1: one, but I have one more. Who is the largest franchisee in the country? Like, I know there's a group out of DFW called I think Sun something that own like over a thousand locations. Yeah. Sun Holdings across multiple brands. Is there anybody larger
0: than them? Yeah. Yeah. So I love Sun Holdings because it was founded by this guy, Guillermo Perales. And he's from Mexico, worked in Dallas via some big Mexican food conglomerate, and then left to buy a Golden Corral, funded that through an SBA loan. And he grew that one Golden Corral until now today, 1,200 franchises. He's got Popeyes, Arby's, Applebee's, like a ton of different fast food and fast casual brands in his portfolio. They do over a billion in revenue are in 22 states, I think. It's like really incredible success story. And that's just as a franchisee. So he's the third biggest in the country, I'm pretty sure. The biggest operator is called the Flynn Group. They're based out of San Francisco. Greg Flynn is the founder and CEO. I think he first started with Wendy's. For the most part, that's all he owns today. is is a mix of Wendy's. He actually bought some Pizza Huts during COVID. There was a big Pizza Hut franchisee who went bankrupt. They owned like twelve hundred Pizza Huts, and they were way over levered, about nine hundred million in debt. So the Flynn Group came in, bought like three hundred to five hundred Pizza Huts in one transaction, and that is the the largest multi unit franchisee in the country. And again, that that one happens to primarily be a food operator, but I had someone on my podcast. His name is Jamie Weeks. He owns 140 Orange Theories. He's still buying up Orange Theories, but also is buying a, a dog daycare, a pretty big dog daycare franchise called Dogtopia. Um, and his goal is to get, he says like the Flynn owner, Greg Flynn is his idol. And, and that's kind of his goal is to uh, be as big as him one day. So It'll be interesting to watch. But uh yeah, I mean it's the scale you can get to just as a multi-unit franchise owner is pretty insane, right? I mean, we're talking about billion-dollar holding companies.
1: It's unbelievable. All right, Wolf. This was awesome, man. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks,
0: thanks for having me. Hope you
1: guys learned something. Yeah, this was great. Thanks again. And how can uh how can folks find you and
0: everything you're doing? Yeah, so I'd say the best way is go to wolfoffranchises.com, my podcast, my Twitter. And Twitter, I'm most active. It's at Franchise Wolf. But I do have that podcast, Franchise Empires, if you're interested in that. But uh, all kind of my media assets is at wolfoffranchises.com. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Chris.
1: Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.